By faith, he, that is Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured, or he took courage, as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Chapter 11 is teaching us about saving faith. The faith described in these summary stories is not a less than saving faith. There are, of course, many false faiths described, explained, exampled in the Holy Scriptures. But here in this chapter, true saving faith is set forth. This is the faith by which a man or woman is made right with God, then lives to that God, and then preserves their soul, as the Holy Spirit says a few verses previous. All of this is set out in some detail. And so we are confronted with the nature of saving faith, the character of saving faith, and the results of saving faith. This morning, we want to look at two more examples of saving faith with the specific emphases that they have. Both of these are, of course, from the life of Moses. And the first is Moses's leaving. Moses's leaving. By faith, Moses left Egypt, Scripture says. Well, what's the story behind this short phrase, this little summary. You might be surprised to know that it's actually debated. Why? Well, because Moses left Egypt twice. He left Egypt on two different occasions. When he was 40, at the time that he killed the Egyptian, he left Egypt. And then 40 years later, he came back and he left Egypt again as the head of the people of God in what we call the Exodus. So, which leaving is it? Well, the Exodus leaving is probably not in view here for two reasons. First, if this was the Exodus talked about in verse 27, then that story or that reference to a story would become the only event in the entire chapter that's told out of chronological order. Everything through the chapter follows the Old Testament ordering of events. So chronologically, the Passover in verse 28 happened before the Exodus. Well, that points to the leaving in verse 27 as much more likely being Moses' first leaving, which, of course, happened many years before the Passover. But secondly, in the Exodus 12 account of the interactions between Pharaoh and Moses, there is no indication that Moses had reason to fear Pharaoh. And that's a fear that our verse references. The story, if you go back and read chapter 11 and chapter 12, it simply doesn't read that way. It says that all of Egypt feared Moses, 
But there doesn't seem to be any cause to believe that Moses feared Pharaoh. In fact, by the time of the 10th plague, it was Pharaoh who was afraid. Remember, he couldn't get Moses and Israel out of his country fast enough. He didn't want plague 11. Well, if these reasons are correct, then leaving Egypt is Moses' first leaving of Egypt. But there's a difficulty with that view as well. Notice the verse says, Moses wasn't afraid. Moses was not afraid. He wasn't afraid of the anger of the king. But the account in Exodus 2 of Moses' first leaving clearly and specifically says Moses was afraid. Well, can those two things be reconciled? Well, I believe they can. Let me read the story, just a couple of verses from Exodus 2, and, and listen, listen carefully, listen analytically, if you will. Beginning at verse uh, 13, when he went out, that is Moses, the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So this fellow Israelite answered and said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Well, God, but that's a different story for a different time, right? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. Of course he was. Of course that was his first reaction. Why wouldn't it be? Because he thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. All right? Moses' initial reaction to being discovered is fear. Then Pharaoh learns of the death and tries to have Moses killed. So Moses fled from Pharaoh. He left Egypt. But our verse 27 is not necessarily in conflict with that when it says that he wasn't afraid of the anger of the king. We assume that when we read the Exodus account we assume that Moses leaves because of fear, but it doesn't actually or overtly say that. It just lists some facts. Moses killed a man. Moses was afraid. Pharaoh found out Moses left Egypt. Now, it might be right to conclude that he left in fear, but Hebrews 11.27 infallibly tells us that that is not the reason he left. Yes, he was afraid at some point in time, for some time, and for some reason. But that is not the reason he left Egypt. He left in faith, not fear. This is why, and we've said this a lot recently, this is why we always want to compare Scripture to Scripture. Never so camp out on a particular verse or story or truth and refuse to look at anything else the Bible says about it 
uh, you're likely to grow in knowledge if you do that. So you want to be careful, right? Clearly, fear initially gripped Moses. Again, of course it did. If you and I had been there, it would have gripped us as well. Just like the unbelieving laughter initially escaped Sarah's throat, so fear came in to Moses' heart. But in both cases, faith overcame fear. So Moses left Egypt, not in terror, but to save himself from the king for God's future already revealed service to rescue Israel from their bondage. He is not living in fear. He is acting in faith. So that's the story. This is Moses' first leaving. And yes, it begins in fear, but it doesn't end in fear. This leaving is done in faith. So what's the act? Well, the act of faith is, of course, easily identified as leaving Egypt. Now, interestingly, the sense of this word is that he's abandoning Egypt. Remember, in the previous verses, he had already rejected the Egyptian lifestyle. He had identified with the people of God. Do you remember that in verses 24 to 26? He chose temporary mistreatment in order to gain the rewards of union with Christ. And these choices are all made by faith, according to the text. And so here in this verse, he acts out that faith, those convictions, those decisions, by forsaking Egypt, body and soul. This is not Moses taking his body to Midian. This is a man who has decided I'm no longer committed to Egypt. I'm a committed Israelite. I'm a follower of God, and I'm leaving on principle because I believe, by faith, the future promises of God. His hopes for the future are not found in Egypt. Instead, his leaving displays his faith in God's future plans for himself and Israel and even the Messiah. This is a flight of faith that looks not to the past in Egypt, but to the future that consists in the promises of God. Well, now, how can he do this? Well, that's the explanation in our verse for this act. How can he do this? What was he thinking? How was Moses enabled to leave? How did he overcome his initial fear? How did he act in faith? The explanation is given at the end of the verse. Quote, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The word endured is only used here in the New Testament. It doesn't mean to simply tolerate or just put up with something for a time. It's not just getting by. The word means to persevere under trials, to bear up with fortitude. In other words, this endurance is courageous. Not only by faith did he leave Egypt not afraid, 
He is living the life of what we might call Christian courage. He is not fearful. He is stout-hearted. He is like his parents in verse 23. Remember, they did not fear the edict of the king. Do you mean their minds were never troubled and it never crossed? Of course it was. Of course it caused them. But faith triumphed over fear. And fear didn't characterize their lives. Courage did. They did not fear the edict of the king. This man is like his parents and Moses too. Oh, yes, he's human. Yes, he feared. But he's not a man of fear. In practice, he's a man of faith. He's a man of courage. Yeah, but how, Pastor Ron? You really haven't said how. (laughs) You've just kind of re-emphasized that he's a man of courage. Well, our verse says, as seeing him who is invisible. This means Moses kept on seeing God. He continually placed God before the eyes of his soul. Just as by faith in verse 26, he was looking to the reward, he was seeing, so here Moses is looking by faith to the one who gives the reward. And this looking was his consistent practice. Again, it's clear from the original that Moses had a fixed habit of spiritually perceiving God in all times and all places. Wherever Moses was, he knew God was there. He was alert and aware of that truth. He lived by that truth. That truth impacted him. You see, he didn't forget easily God's presence and promises. No, he constantly recognized them. No matter what his physical eyes saw, his faith viewed the invisible God. Now, many of you children know that God is spirit and doesn't have a body like men. So our physical eyes are useless in perceiving God. But faith properly makes invisible things, the things that verse 1 calls unseen things, real and present to us. And this is not self-delusion. This is proof, truth, reality, according to verse 1 and verse 6. And this includes God. By faith, Moses walked with God and practiced the presence of God. So while Pharaoh certainly at times was physically present to Moses, God was always spiritually present as well. He was truly there. Moses' faith recognized God's nearness, and he took courage from that. Moses endured because he saw the one who is invisible. Now I have, I have two uses from this, and, and these are a bit lengthy. Our, last, uh, our second verse is, is quite short, um, but if I go too long on this, we'll just stop, all right? So have no fear. First use, 
And uh, I think this is especially appropriate, perhaps, to some of you soldiers. Maybe I'm wrong. But it's this. Leaving a dangerous situation is not always wrong or sinful. Leaving a dangerous situation is not always wrong or sinful. Flight is not always cowardice. Of course, sometimes it is. But it isn't always. And Moses is an example of that. Sometimes flight is faithfulness. Sometimes flight is wisdom. Sometimes flight is obedience to God. Think about the many biblical examples behind this principle. Christ instructed his disciples in Matthew 10, 23. When they persecute you in one town, just choose to die, make it your last stand, and be done with it. No, flee to the next city, he said. Paul escaped Damascus, not because he was a chicken, but because he was wise. He knew God had work for him to do. And so he escaped Damascus through the city walls in a basket. When the Jews and the, the governor under King Eratus conspired to kill him. Christ himself often left the company of men who wanted to harm him. Why? Because his time hadn't come yet. All of these were acts of faith and obedience. So learn from Moses' example that courageous faith may lead you to leave a situation rather than stay. Confrontation is not always obedience. Sometimes it's stupidity. Confrontation is not always obedience. And so may God help us to wisely act in faith in all cases. A second use. Saving faith. Moses' Moses's example teaches us that saving faith is always accompanied by evangelical courage. Saving faith is always accompanied by evangelical courage. Now we've learned over and over again in this chapter that saving faith is not alone. It's never alone. Oh yes, it alone, because of union with Christ, justifies us, but true saving faith in the life of a man or a woman is never alone. All of the other graces of Christ follow in the train of faith. Well, that's true here too. Just as faith is joined with repentance, just as saving faith is always accompanied by other graces, just like saving faith is always um, joined to true obedience or good works, just as saving faith identifies with the people of God, so saving faith has a close friend that always accompanies her wherever she goes, and his name is courage. The readers of this book really needed this reminder. They had been through some very difficult times from the governmental authorities. Life was hard. It hadn't really eased up. And they needed to endure. They needed to remain stout-hearted. They needed courage. So do we. 
I am not a prophet, and neither are you. Some of us may read the signs of the times, as they're called in the Old Testament, more accurately than others. Maybe the days ahead of us in our country are ones full of safety and continued freedom. Maybe they are not. Maybe those things are very short-lived. But it isn't hard for any of us, I don't think, to recognize that a call to courage might be very helpful to Christians here and now in the years ahead. God calls us to live the life of faith. Well, that's a life of courage. That's a life when sometimes we stay and sometimes we flee. Sometimes we confront and sometimes we don't. Again, may God give us wisdom. May he give us law and wisdom to know when to do which. But you will need this. You need courage, parent, to say to your child, oh, dear one, you are a sinner. (laughs) And you are earning wages of death. But there's a way out. It, It takes courage to do that. It takes courage to come to church in places around the world where to be identified on the camera or reported by the neighbor leads to all kinds of (laughs) troubles in your life. On and on and on the list of examples could go, but I hope none of you need any more convincing that we need Christian courage. But I'm here to tell you on the basis of this example of Moses, if you are a Christian, if you have saving faith, you do have evangelical courage. If you're a Christian, you have this. Maybe in a great measure. Maybe in a small measure. Maybe like so many other graces, it needs to really grow. But on the basis of the word of God, I declare to you, you do have evangelical courage. What do I mean evangelical courage? I mean bravery rooted not in your own nature, but in the new birth. A courage that God gave you. Why? Because in regeneration, you were given a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. That's Christian courage. That's 2 Timothy 1.7. This is necessary for us. This is going to be hard to hear for some of you, I think. But this is necessary for us. You must have courage. Why? Because in Revelation Mm 21.8... It says this, Mm -hmm. the cowardly Mm -hmm. and the faithless, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Cowardly people go to hell. Not because your courage earns you heaven. Mm -hmm. Oh, 
may, may we forever in our thinking damn the damnable doctrine of salvation by works, right? Whether it's courage or some other so-called Christian grace. But spiritual cowards, according to this verse, clearly go to hell. And such statements can be made because saving faith is always joined with all the other graces, including the grace of courage. Christians are conquerors. Mm -hmm. Yes, more than conquerors. Mm -hmm. Through and in and by mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. You might say, I never thought of it quite like that. This is a little frightening. I don't know if I have courage or not. I know I get embarrassed when the neighbor wants to talk about religious things. Well, this verse not only teaches us that saving faith always is accompanied by evangelical courage, but this verse also gives us perhaps the main way to grow our courage. And the main way is to imitate Moses and constantly see the invisible God. We sinfully fear too often because we forget that we are always in the presence of a God. The God. No, our God. <laughs> our God. The God who is for us only. He is not against us. All of the promises to us, including these, are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So God's presence with us, yes, it should keep us from sin. That it, it should warn us in that sense. But it should fundamentally encourage us, strengthen us. Because he is indeed with us at all times. Again, we sinfully fear too often because we forget the presence of God. We see trouble. We see an enemy. We look at ourselves but we don't use our eyes of faith to see the always present, always for us God. And we forget the new heart and the Holy Spirit that he's put within us. You know who we're like? We're like that little servant boy of Elisha in 2 Kings 6. He gets up and there in the morning and there are all these horses and chariots and there's this great army all around the city. What does he do? He, he does what any person would do. He gets terrified. He's afraid. He fears. Of course he does. Elisha doesn't seem to be afraid. Why not? Because Elisha has eyes to see something that the boy doesn't. So what does Elisha do? He prays, what, that God would uh, immediately defeat the army so the boy could... No, no, no. What he prays for is that God would open the boy's eyes to see the power of God. And he does that. And what does he see? He sees that the armies of the Lord are greater than these puny little human armies. Right? He's the God of hosts. He's the God of armies. This is no contest. But the problem wasn't that God was weak. The problem was the boy didn't have eyes to see. Well, too often, we stare at the trouble, we stare at our sin, we stare at our weakness, we stare at some person who's reproaching or embarrassing or threatening us, and 
and we forget about God. God is always with us. Amen. There's a very good, very bad book uh, called Practicing the Presence of God uh, by a monk from the Middle Ages. There's all kinds of wonderful things in it mixed with all kinds of really bad things in it. All right? If you're mature enough, and I mean this sincerely, if you're mature enough, you might be able to read that with profit. But his point is this. Our lives should be spent alert, not just to the existence of God theoretically, but to his near presence with us. That would change your life. I would sin a lot less if I could remember that. I would accomplish a great deal more if I could remember that. I would sense help. I would, dare I say it, I would feel courage even at times because I know that God is for me and he's greater than the one who's against me. It's that hard and it's that simple, right? It's that hard and it's that simple. Let us settle our hearts in the assurance of God's presence and his protection so that when trials come, we may be bold in the cause of God. I do think I will stop there. A bit short for one of my regular sermons, but if we keep going, it will be too long. There's not a good other place to stop. This is something that I hope has affected me this week, and I hope it will affect you. I hope you will recognize the need and the value of not forgetting God but seeing God in every part of your life. This is how Moses could leave Egypt, not in fear, but in faith. And this is how we will lead our lives and leave this earth. If, if we can remember this, if we can practice this, we need to ask Christ for this grace, and he gives to every one of his children who ask. Now, remember, sometimes he forms these graces in us in the hardest and worst circumstances, or so it seems. What we want is we want patience now. Thank you. I want courage now. I don't want it with the trouble. I don't want you to come to my aid in the midst of the battle. I just want it so that when the battle comes, it's not really a battle and I just win. Your ease is not God's goal. Your purification, being made like Jesus, and ultimate salvation, that's his goal. And you and I must feel our dependence. There's really no, nothing more fundamental to human beings in relation to God than this, dependence. If you're pursuing something for God and you don't feel dependent on him, you will fail. Even if it looks like to you, you've succeeded. You, you will fail. Because, because our knowledge of God 
is fundamentally one of faith. It's one of trust. It's one of dependence. It's one of leaning. It's one of resting. And if we aren't doing that, we're more like unbelievers than believers. Self-sufficiency is not a Christian trait, right? Right? Self-discipline is. Other self-things are. Self-sufficiency isn't one of them. And we're not sufficient to somehow stoke up or generate courage with ourselves. But God is. Remember, you're saved not just by the washing away of your failures and sins by Jesus on the cross. That's half of it, yes. But you're saved by his perfect righteousness. He lived a life in your place that was perfectly courageous, perfectly wise, that, that earned every grace you need for life now and for heaven. So he has it. <laughs> He's fundamentally changed you so that you have begun to have it, and you and I can excel in this by his grace as we pursue it according to his ways. Well, may God help us uh, to do that. Praise the Lord that the Old Testament is not a closed, useless book to believers.